Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we invited Khaled El-Gindi onto the show. Khaled is senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and the author of Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Khaled is an authority on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian struggle and a historian of America's foreign policy in the region. His book is a worthy read for those struggling to make sense of what is going on. And as a Palestinian, he has a unique perspective that is really worth paying attention to. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Okay, Khaled, uh, great to see you. Great to have you on. I was really excited that we could talk to you because I think you are one of the leading voices on all things Palestine in Washington, D.C. And you, I think you wrote one of the definitive books that actually looks at Palestinian politics and tries to take Palestinians seriously as Palestinians. It's called Blind Spot. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Highly recommend that to our to our listeners and viewers. And maybe the phrase blind spot is a good way to start the conversation about where we're at. Because I think you've been arguing for years that as Americans, we don't take Palestinians seriously. We don't treat them as legitimate actors in their own right. We treat them as appendages to Israel or as people and groups to manipulate. Um, and we don't actually realize that there are complex intra-Palestinian divisions and there are different factions and it is complicated and we just don't pay enough attention. I want to tie that to where we're at now as we get into month two of an increasingly destructive war in Gaza. My sense from following you on Twitter and reading what you've been writing is that you've been really taken aback by how American officials and and even many American commentators have kind of responded to what's going on. And a lot of, I think, disregard for Palestinian suffering, for Palestinian lives, which goes back to what you talk about in your book, that... We just don't, for whatever reason, see them as equal human beings deserving of dignity. And we talk about them as if they're collateral damage and we use these kinds of phrases. Maybe just to start, how are you surprised by what you've seen in the public debate? And and if you are, maybe just describe how you're trying to how you're processing all of this. Yeah. So uh, so first, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say I'm both surprised and not surprised. Um, it's uh, it's not surprising in the sense that, you know, Biden's approach uh, to the Palestinians is very much in line with previous U.S. administrations, both Republican and Democrat, uh, where there's a tendency to uh, to look at the Palestinians through a distinctly Israeli lens. Sometimes it's a right wing Israeli lens. 
uh, like Trump, and sometimes it's more of a center or or left. You know, back when there was a left in Israeli politics, uh, sort of lens. But it's always an Israeli lens, and that necessarily filters out certain realities of Palestinians. Um, certainly, Palestinian politics and political aspirations uh, get filtered out in some some form. But in its most extreme, uh, Palestinian humanity gets filtered out. And that's where I think I've been most surprised. I had no illusions about who Joe Biden was or where his sympathies uh, lie. Uh, We've seen indications uh, during his, um, uh, even as vice president, but but especially during the campaign, of, of his deep personal attachment to Israel. And it is... Um, it is uh, genuine. There's no question that he he feels very deep affection for the Israeli people, for Israel as a state, and for Israel as an idea, um, more so than uh, certainly his former boss, uh, Barack Obama, um, or even more so than any president that I can recall. Um, and so I didn't the the fact that he was israel centric in his approach didn't surprise me but the extent to which uh that meant also a an inability to um to see palestinian humanity or to to empathize with palestinians to me that was striking like the 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 level of that inability to empathize has been quite jarring for me, as someone who's watched, you know, even the George W. Bush administration at the peak of the war on terror in the months after 9-11, when Ariel Sharon was calling Yasser Arafat our bin Laden, even in that highly charged environment, even the Bush administration could lay down some markers, some guardrails, some red lines, uh, and, and even sort of call out Israel occasionally when they went too far. Um, we've seen none of that from the administration. The the only times that there have been any um, markers laid out, they've been mostly coming from the State Department, and then usually negated by by something that the the White House says uh, or that the president says uh, directly. And and so that part of it, I think, has take has taken me aback. And I wanted I want to mm-hmm. dig a little bit deeper. Why do you think so many Americans, especially American officials and politicians, have so much trouble sympathizing with Palestinians and not to sort of psychoanalyze people too much? I have my own ideas about that. I think there are some deeper factors here. Um, And just, you know, one, one thing I'll just put out there, I'd be curious what your response is. I think that there is a sense that Israel represents Western liberal values, that Israel represents civilization, and that that's in contrast to Muslims writ large and Palestinians in particular, who are somehow less civilized. There's almost a sense that they are barbaric. They're not in tune with modernity. I think there is a frustration that Palestinians haven't done what so many have done before, which is accept defeat. That, you know, there's a sense that, oh, okay, well, they Arabs have lost in wars, and what do people do when they lose wars? They accept that, and they 
they accept that they're not going to get everything that they want. And there's something about Palestinians and that they haven't given up on their cause and that there there is a very strong sentiment that has been passed down through generations. I think there's a sense of, well, why can't they get over it? They lost and they should deal with reality as it is. The past is done. Israel was created. Um, wars were lost. 1967 happened. Israel is dominant militarily. And instead of resisting that, they should find a way to accept less. And this goes back to the so-called generous offer of 2000 and Camp David, that maybe they would have been better off. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm even tempted to wonder about a counterfactual history. Um, you know, what if something had turned out differently in 2000 or in the Annapolis peace talks of 2008, which if I recall how you were involved in, but we can get to some of that later. Um, but just take that where you will. Like, what is really animating this lack of regard for Palestinians as Palestinians from normal, respectable, mainstream voices in our public debate? Because I've been struck by that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of factors. There are some uh, cultural factors, for sure. So there is some latent and not so latent uh, Islamophobia uh, um, some what we might call philo-Semitism, uh, you know, this this uh, affection for the Jewish people that translates into, um, you know, kind of giving Israel a blank check. Uh, and a lot of it also is nostalgia, um, sentimentality, uh, guilt over the Holocaust, uh, you know, a aversion to the kind of violent anti-Semitism that we've seen in the past. Uh, and 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 this kind of romanticized notion that Israel, it, it, you know, Israel was this miracle that happened against all odds, right? And and Joe Biden is part of that generation who who viewed Israel's creation as a miracle, and as a light unto the world. And and I'm I'm using terms um, that aren't. It's not hyperbole. There are people who who view. Uh, Israel, you know, Biden is one of these people who says things like, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It is important <laughs> to American national security and interests. And so there's a there's a tendency to conflate a, a kind of Judeo-Christian culture, civilization, identity with, uh, with our strategic interests, which, you know, obviously they're not the same. Uh, uh, but, but a lot of it has to do with identity and, and cultural reasons. Um, a big chunk of it is, is that completely, is that completely illegitimate? Uh, I'm obviously you're critical of that perspective, but I think that if others hear how you just described that, they might say, oh, like perfectly understandable reasons to, to back Israel and to, yeah. 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 And so, and it, also if, if we imagine, you know, if we go back to the moment when Israel was created, it was, uh, you know, three years after. Uh, the death camps were were liberated, right? And people saw the horrors of uh, of of the uh, you know Nazi genocide against against Jews. So it's not at all surprising that Americans at then and now would have sympathy for, for the Jewish people and 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 the uh, accept the justification for a Jewish state and a Jewish homeland in their historic homeland, right? So. You know, I, I perfectly understand the, the cultural and historical factors for it. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's, it, 
there's nothing to be critical of, you know, in the sense that the past is past. And, and you know, certainly Israel's creation came at a cost for Palestinians. Uh, it, it came at quite a high cost. They were entirely dispossessed. I mean, the majority of the Palestinian population was uh, expelled or fled in the years from 1947 to 1949 as a direct result of Israel's creation. And there's no, no changing that. What's interesting, though, is that American uh, policymakers back then, they understood that. They understood the reality of Israel's creation. They didn't sugarcoat it. They knew that Israel was created through terror and violence and the destruction of an entire society. Um, and they were quite alarmed by it. Even someone like uh, Harry Truman, uh, who's seen as the, the midwife of the Israeli state, but, but still understood the horrors of what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba. Uh, but that gets forgotten over time. And within a generation uh, of... 1948, it was forgotten, and new narratives had emerged. Um, the David and Goliath narrative that we now know, that Israel uh, beat the odds and fought off five Arab countries uh, fighting for its survival, um, when people in real time understood that the uh, Zionist forces in Palestine were far more numerous and better equipped than the, the combination of, of Arab forces. Um, but it doesn't matter, right? Narratives are what remain. And, and the same thing with the generous offer at Camp David. The, the facts of what happened at Camp David don't matter uh, as much as the narrative that keeps getting told and retold. The, the whole generous offer narrative has been debunked by Israeli negotiators, by Americans, by uh, certainly uh, Palestinians. So the record is, is clear historically. But that's not necessarily how people remember it, even just 23 years ago. Um, so what is that power, that force that animates and sustains those narratives? Part of it is culture, and a big part of it also is domestic politics. There is no question that there is a very, very powerful pro-Israel lobby, I would say plural, lobbies, uh, because there are uh, Jewish groups and there are uh, Christian evangelical groups, uh, and they're quite powerful, uh, uh, both of them, in financial terms. They have the resources they have. Uh, when you factor in evangelicals, they also have large numbers. So uh, they are able to shape the narratives in the media for politicians, uh, look at what happened just yesterday. The single, solitary, sole Palestinian-American in Congress uh, was censured officially uh, by a majority vote in, in the House for saying, I guess, from the river to the sea, um, for something that when Israeli or pro-Israel forces use that same phrase or something similar to mean greater Israel, nobody bats an eye. Um, there certainly aren't any condemnations from fellow lawmakers in, in Congress. You have members of Congress standing on the House floor calling Palestinians all sorts of dehumanizing uh, uh, names and uh, calling for leveling Gaza and, you know, really horrible stuff, even literally questioning the very humanity of Palestinians. Um, one Republican House member stood on the House floor and said, there's really no such thing as an innocent Palestinian civilian. So there is 
that hostility to Palestinians is, yeah, part of it is pro-Israelism on steroids and uh, latent and not so latent Islamophobia, but a good chunk of it is unique to Palestinians, right? There is a kind of hatred of, of Palestinians, particularly in Congress, that goes beyond the general hatred toward Arabs and Muslims. And it's because Palestinians are standing in the way of this they're the, they're the stick in the mud, right? Their existence is problematic for, you know, Israel's creation story that is much less romantic when you factor in the destruction of Palestinian society. Uh, it's, you know, Israel is a light unto the world or the most moral army. All of these myths that people need to associate for whatever ideological reasons with Israel, uh, the Palestinians keep standing in the way. Um, uh, whatever it is, a land without a people, for a people without a land, the most moral army, uh, all these myths are are shattered by the mere existence of Palestinians. And that hostility is, is palpable. And in fact, even if you go back 100 years, you can find a similar hostility uh, to the mere existence of Palestinians because... Um, People want to have this romantic idea, uh, you know, so there's the idea, the kind of ideological side of it, but there's also the political side. So, Khaled, can I ask you about the political side? <clears throat> um, I, you know, the, the, your book really is terrific. And I think uh, for me, uh, as I was saying before we started recording, very much a neophyte to all of this, um, the, uh, I was quite struck by the second half the post-Cold War part and the descri description of the rise of the peace process and American attitudes and the American blind spot. The part that struck me in the first part, though, um, and this is sort of maybe to push back a little bit about um, how the narratives come about. Um, I was really struck by, uh, you know, clearly Truman is conflicted. Um, but then in your telling of the story up until the end of the Cold War, it seems to me like the, the actual fact that it all took place during the Cold War takes a back seat a little bit. And I guess what I'm getting at there is that, you know, in my, again, sort of cursory reading of the history, um, clearly Israel positions itself over time, and especially uh, with Kissinger after the Yom Kippur War. Um, as an even closer partner to the United States. But it's not, it's not like it's always there. Uh, and it's not like the relationship is always very close. And, and the fact is, is it seems to me that, that, that the sort of that part uh, of history and sort of the United States role, I mean, I think it's true that, that all of these sorts of happy narratives pop up about Israel and, um, this kind of story that animates perhaps people like Joe Biden today. But at least during the Cold War, you know, the, the, the Palestinian question is, it, it is a blind spot for Americans, but it's a blind spot because of the Cold War, because everything is seen through the lens of keeping the Soviets out of the Middle East because of the oil. Priority is, is relations with Egypt and states. It's a state-centric approach to foreign policy. And so the Palestinians don't play a role. 
insofar as the Palestinian question arises, it's through Jordan and things like that. Um, I guess, you know, maybe let's just, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how that blind spot before it's forgotten, um, how consequential is that, that the fact that the Cold War ensconces everything? And I, let me even sharpen that question a little bit. Is your frustration about the United States in the Cold War that they are not approaching things morally, that the Palestinian cause, that, that foreign policy actually isn't shaped by those kinds of values questions? Um, and can you fault the United States in the middle of the Cold War that it's not motivated by a kind of Wilsonianism, the Wilsonian ideas that, you know, precede all of this before? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, uh, Wilsonian ideas that even Wilson didn't apply to to the Palestinians. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, to me, Wilson is, is one of the, the big devils of American history, quite frankly. I mean, just to put my cards on the on the table. But, but you know, and, and, and again, you know, I mean, Shadi and I were talking, Wilson, Wilsonianism, you know, in, in one could trace a direction from Wilsonian concepts of self-determination to, like, really violent ethnic sorting on the European continent that, that follows sort of the, the collapse of empires there. And it's, you know, for all its idealism, it leads to ethnic partitions and the, the emergence of ethnic democracies on the sort of the ashes of, of sort of Wilsonian idealism. Anyway, that's just a lot, but just, I don't know if you want to react to, to any part of that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Cold War and the, the, the blind spot, I would say the blind spot is first and foremost a, a lens that, that I described earlier. Uh, it's this Zionist slash Israel lens through which American policymakers, not all of them, uh, they're, they're always, there's always a kind of clique of dissenting views in whether it's in the State Department or somewhere else in the intelligence community. Um, but that overriding lens of looking at Palestinians through uh, through a Zionist or Israeli lens, through their priorities, through their imperatives and needs and narratives, um, is is the issue. Now, sometimes that gets subsumed under a different, you know, additional lenses, right? The Cold War lens, you add that into the mix. And and now, well, you know, the, the PLO is part of the, the, the Soviet, is, is another Soviet client. Uh, like Iraq right. and Syria and Libya and those those states that were seen as a direct threat to to U.S. interests, um, but it it didn't always fit that way. I mean, one one thing that I was struck by, if you look in the 1960s and 70s, uh, American policymakers and intelligence people are sort of baffled with, okay, we get why, um, you know, the 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 kind of more revolutionary. Uh, regimes in the in the Arab world are so pro-Palestinian, right? Uh, they're anti-imperialist and they have this fiery rhetoric and uh, they're aligning with the Soviet bloc. Uh, but they could not for the life of them understand why countries like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia also felt very passionately about the Palestinian issue. And so even you know, early on in the in the Cold War, there was a sense there were limitations of that lens, right? That it could only um, it could only explain so much, um, and then that. Lens but you, you 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 do blame that you do blame the 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 sort of the the Arab countries at the same time of playing and using the Palestinian issue 
for their own sort of parochial reasons, right? I mean, it's it's that perception of the Americans is not it's not complete for sure. Yeah. But and and there are parts that are baffling. But but it's not it's not merely you know uh, Israeli cunning and ability to position itself in an ideal way for the Americans. And I mean, the Palestinian question is 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 a pawn of of, of Arab regimes for a while in the twentieth century, right? Sure, it was. I mean, it it, it and it it was something uh, that Arab regimes tried to capture and control for their own purposes. Uh, they they needed it in part for their own legitimacy. Uh, to you know, brandish their pro their pan Arab credentials like Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, and uh, and it had a lot of currency, um, and and we saw the currency that the Palestine issue had in the undermining of the regimes that existed in in 1948, right when Arab states were defeated by Israel, then we saw one Arab regime after another, Egypt, Syria. Uh, Iraq uh, fall, and, and and they were replaced by these uh, revolutionary, mostly military regimes, um, who for whom the Palestinian issue was the battle cry, and uh, so that, you know that part isn't surprising because they're playing to their domestic that's domestic politics in the same way Americans you know, talk about Israel for their domestic politics. Well, Arab leaders have to talk about Palestine and Palestinian rights, even if they're, even if it's insincere. Um, you know, Gamal Abdel Nasser liked to talk about Palestinian resistance and the Fedayeen, you know, the guerrilla fighters and their heroes. Uh, but he mainly also wanted to control them, to keep them from attacking uh, when he, when it didn't suit his, his needs. Uh, because that would trigger war with Israel, right? Israel would respond not just to the people who attacked, but to the host countries uh, that, you know, in many cases was Egypt and Jordan. So, uh, so, but it was sincere. I mean, it's, it's uh, yes, they use it, but there's a reason they use it. They use it because it has currency uh, among Arab publics. And uh, they, they at least have to be seen as doing something you know, on the Palestinian issue, but it was inevitable that the Palestinians would would assert their own agency. And so, after '67, that's when we see you know the whole notion that Arab states were going to liberate Palestine. That's now been completely discredited, and these guerrilla groups take over the PLO, which had been really a, a puppet of the uh, of the Egyptian regime and the the broader um, you know the Arab League in general. They take it over and they turn it into a genuinely autonomous Palestinian uh, political address for the first time ever. That's now on the international uh, scene. Um, so there are limits even to 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 that. Uh, but just going back to the idea of lenses, so it there it's not one lens or another. Sometimes it's multiple lenses layered on top of each other. And so after the Cold War, we now have a different lens. It's the war on terror. Um, and uh, we saw, particularly during the George W. Bush era, how the Palestinian issue was subsumed under this very rigid war on terror. Who was the axis of evil and who who wasn't? And uh, it, it, you know, sort of... Uh, negated a lot of the context, the history of the conflict, right? That has its own baggage and dynamics, and uh, and to try to fit that square peg in this round hole was was a problem. Uh, 
uh, and and one reason why the the Bush era was such a failure on so many levels, uh, but particularly when it came to uh, the Israeli Palestinian issue. I mean, the 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 part that's striking about it is that you know, the blind spots persist um, after the Cold War, but it's striking to me that that it's only after the Cold War and the Soviet Union is gone is that uh, the Americans even get engaged in anything approaching a peace process, even before Oslo. You have Baker. And it seems to me it's it's that all of a sudden Americans have the spare time to even care about the Palestinian question, because before it was all again subsumed in the question of the Cold War. And again, fair point. This is seems to me that's what bedevils American policy since then, since Americans have started to care, if you will, and sort of give an effort to realize the ideals that they just generally espouse but don't mean. Um, it's it's because they have spare time to devote to it. And then they're frustrated with the Palestinians because this sort of, they're not living up to this idea that they have of, I don't know what, uh, a state-worthy people, a people that, that can organize themselves, that can be democratic. And then all of these, you know, Orientalist and, and kind of uh, uh, perhaps even bigoted views come into it. But but I mean that's what's also striking is that that Americans do seem to finally 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 care only after the Cold War. Is that fair? I mean, does that seem like? In, in a way, yes. But I but I'm not sure there's a direct cause and effect as opposed to it merely being a correlation um, because uh, the the American approach was always behind the curve. Um, it, it was they sort of came to terms with certain Palestinian realities uh, after everything else had been exhausted, after there were no other uh, options left on the table. So, for example, for for the first 40 years after Israel's creation and, and, and the, 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 the creation of the Palestinian problem, let's call it, uh, the policy of the United States was to not deal directly with any Palestinian interlocutor directly, right? We're not talking to the PLO. There are lots of reasons, uh, terrorism, they won't recognize Israel, whatever. Um, but officially, U.S. policy was, until Ronald Reagan, until the very end of his second term, that Jordan was the proper address uh, to deal with the Palestinian issue. And uh, that was both Democratic and Republican administrations. Now, Jimmy Carter was a bit of a divergence in that he tried to bring the PLO into the process, but found that his hands were tied because of the restrictions that were imposed before he came along. Uh, along. So the it, it was only when the, the First Intifada erupted and put the Palestinian issue on the global agenda, and when King Hussein himself renounced all ties and claims to the West Bank, uh, and when the PLO had jumped through all the specific hoops that the Americans had put for them to, to establish dialogue, only after all of that did they say, okay, now we can have a dialogue with the PLO, but it was a very limited dialogue. They still weren't allowed to be part of the peace process. That would come a couple of years later, right? So they were in a way, dragged kicking and screaming into reality of you have to deal with the PLO. You have to do, and then, then the next hurdle was 
you have to accept the idea of Palestinian statehood because up until 2000, the official U.S. policy was to oppose Palestinian statehood. People often forget this, right? They think the two-state solution has been on the table for decades um, when the reality is the United States explicitly opposed Palestinian statehood from 1948 until uh, 2000. Uh, officially, right? Unofficially, yes, we know that Clinton understood that a state would be the outcome of the Oslo process. Uh, but officially, uh, and it was described as destabilizing, right? The goal, you know, the, the official parlance of uh, the of successive administrations would say, we do not accept the goal of a Palestinian state, which would be uh, destabilizing in the region. And so it's interesting how what was destabilizing now is seen as the only game in town, right, as the only way to actually stabilize uh, the situation between Israelis and Palestinians. So the, the Americans are always late to the show, um, and they're late to the two-state solution, and they will also be late to discovering that the two-state solution is probably dead. So where's the show now? I guess that's a great, that's a, you know, so I mean, we could, we could litigate. I, the history is fascinating and I really do encourage, uh, our, our listeners and, 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 uh, and viewers, uh, to pick up your book because it's, 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 it's excellent. Um, but where, so where are we now? That's, you know, so the two state solution is dead, uh, you'd say, and, and the, what's the new reality? What are we looking at? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's easier to say what isn't than what is, uh, and um, I mean, look, it, I think a two-state solution is highly, highly improbable. Um, if you look at the political realities in Israel, Israeli politics are post-two states. If you look at the political realities in our own country, one of our two major parties is post-two-state solution. Uh, and, and so that consensus that used to exist in Israeli, American, and Palestinian politics is collapsing. So those are the reasons that lead me to the conclusion that it's probably dead. Now, that said, um, I think it's theoretically still achievable. If there was now, you know, given this this, hor this horror show we're watching in Gaza, if there's a renewed seriousness um, and urgency on the part of the United States and, and others to push for a two-state solution, it could happen. Um, but, you know, that means it's still going to be a very heavy political lift. You, you have to do, uh, you know, the, the imagine trying to convince this or any Israeli government to evacuate hundreds of thousands of settlers, uh, to divide Jerusalem and hand sovereignty of the, of the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria to the Palestinians, right? Um, it's, it's a tall order to say the least, and not just because of the Kahanists and the far-right extremists in this government. Even a more centrist government, I don't think, could could take those steps. Um, and I don't see a U.S. administration that is going to compel Israel to take those steps. We can't even, Joe Biden can't even convince the Israelis to have a humanitarian pause. Just a tiny little pause in the merciless bombardment of 2.3 million people uh, to allow some limited uh, humanitarian assistance to reach this uh, in completely besieged and embattled population. Uh, even that he can't convince them. So how, who, 
Tell me which president on the scene has the vision and the political courage to sit down with an Israeli leader and say, here's how it's going to be. You're going to have to divide Jerusalem, evacuate hundreds of thousands of settlers. We're not talking, you know, an outpost here and there. We're talking if you're going to have a contiguous Palestinian state, you're going to have to evacuate a very, very large number uh, of the 700 uh, or so thousand. So who's going to undertake that? Where does that political courage and vision come from? I just don't see it. Yeah, so I, I want to dwell on the Israeli perspective for a moment and push you on a couple points because I I hear some of these arguments quite a lot and I, I'd i be curious how you'd respond. So I think that if, if you're looking at it as, say, ex-Israeli citizen <clears throat> or an Israeli politician, you naturally you're not going to care that much about Palestinian politics. You don't see the Palestinian national cause as worthy of attention as de as deserving in any way. And I think the preference from the Israeli mainstream now after the October 7th attacks by Hamas is to pummel Palestinians into submission, to not just deter them from from uh, future attacks on Israel proper, but to defeat the Palestinian people so um, in in such a full, total way that they are broken into submission, and then will accept. And this goes back to the question of how of how people accept defeat if they in fact face defeat. But I think that the Israeli response to a lot of what you're saying, Khaled, is. Uh, for us, October 7th was the defining day. What Hamas did on that day was horrific and unprecedented. And so the goal now is to defeat and perhaps even try to eliminate Hamas by any means necessary. And if that means 10,000 Palestinians are killed, so be it. If it's 20,000, you know, from an Israeli perspective, maybe not ideal. But at a, at a fundamental level, Israeli politicians don't care about Palestinian lives. And they just Israeli don't. civilians. And, but I mean, only one thing I want to push you there, Shadi, both of you. I mean, I think, you know, there was uh, uh, the Haaretz reporter, Amir Tubon, who I met years ago when he was in D.C. Uh, you know, he was, uh, his family was attacked by Hamas. And I, he was, he's been sort of tweeting, um, I mean, I, I think... As, He's 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 pretty empathetic um, to Palestinians, but but he draws a very strict line between what Hamas did and then the Palestinian question. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Feel free to take it either way. But you know, even there, Shadi, you, you started with talking about Israelis trying to break Palestinians, but I do think that that you know the the broad consensus in Israeli society today has to do with Hamas. And so the question is, no, no, I just, what, what is Hamas? I don't think and, it has to do with Hamas. I, I, it's not about Hamas. It, it's I mean, about, I, I think, I think, I think if you ask Bibi, I think he, he, and he was candid about it. He might be, he might conflate the two, uh, and, and talk about Palestinians writ large. But I, I, I do think that, that, you know, Israeli society writ large, maybe not, is not quite as monolithic on this, but you could get a real consensus on the problem being Hamas specifically. I, so I don't know, unpack those two for me yeah. either way. However, I, I, uh, I'm going to disagree, um, 
loudly on on that point. I, I think what we're seeing from from the Israeli leadership at all levels, military and political, and from Israeli civil society, the media, the commentariat, uh, is the opposite. There is no distinct. If there was a distinction between terrorists and civilians, that distinction has is now being erased. Um, Israeli leaders are speaking in openly. There's no other way to describe it. Genocidal terms. Uh, you know the. the Defense minister refers to them as uh, Palestinians as human animals at the moment that he's cutting all food, medicine, uh, fuel, water to the entire population of Gaza. Uh, that is uh, that is not a targeted, um, uh, you know, that's not aimed at Hamas. That aimed at the entire population. We heard President Herzog, who is seen as a moderate say that all Palestinians in Gaza are to blame because they voted for Hamas. It's not just about uh, Hamas. Uh, we're seeing average people on the street, the, the commentary in, in, I mean, the, the commentary in the media is horrifying uh, when you hear open calls for genocide, open calls for ethnic cleansing. There is a plan on the table uh, put forward by an Israeli ministry essentially for the entire expulsion, expulsion of the entire population of Gaza to the Sinai. And these are not ideas that are just floating in the ether. They're, they have a history. And the, the ability for Israelis to uh, engage in nuance and empathy and subtlety is being erased. And what I worry about is that we, we, the United States, are helping to erase that capacity by adopting similarly zero-sum, eradicationist, uh, maximalist positions that are coming from the White House. I, I, look, I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with, you know, those statements have been made, that white paper, you know, I don't know if it's policy, it's certainly floating in the ether and Bibi's government is the kind of government that would have those kinds of white papers floating around. The language is horrifying. It's not rhetoric, but just, if I could just but, step in, it is not rhetoric. I mean, Gaza is being obliterated. I mean, 10,000 killed in such a short period of time out of a population of 2.2 million. I mean, it's remarkable numbers the, the in terms is, of the per it, capita but, death rate. Um, the, question, the question is Hamas, though, ultimately. And that's, and that's, and that, you know, I mean, Shadi, you and I have gone back and forth on this a lot. That isn't, it's, but that's and, not and, ultimately but, but, the question for Israel. It, it, but, but it, it, I mean, look, I guess, I guess as someone who is neither Jewish, doesn't know the Middle East very well, you know, I'm friends with you, Shadi, I'm a foreign policy guy, but I'm not, it's, 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 I look at the, 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 the only way out of this, the problem is Hamas. And you you just wrote a piece uh, in, I think, the best possible faith at the Washington Post about, you know, how to structure a ceasefire for this. And part of that involves uh, Hamas basically, I mean, to be fair, doing everything the Israelis want, give up the hostages, give themselves up, and then be integrated somehow into a kind of political future. And and I you know I, I and it's you know whether whether the Israelis could accept that that's a big question I think that's well a, no unless the U S puts overwhelming no, 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 no. pressure the, the on an Israeli is, government the question to is would Hamas mm. accept it is the question to me and I, I and I and I think this gets back to Khaled why I really liked your book 
um, in describing, you know, the obviously, you know, when Americans get involved in the peace process, um, they they latch onto, I would never say embrace, but they latch onto the PLO as the kind of partner. And then, as you detail in your book, are constantly trying to, in their minds and in their policies, or at least how they explain it to themselves, make them into something, into some kind of respectable partner. And in doing so, they don't understand what Shadi was referring to at the beginning, the politics that underline Palestinian society, the realities of that politics, that the PLO, the more it plays ball, the weaker it is, the less legitimate it is. But so so now the question is, you know, we can fall back and and say, I mean, this is it's 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 horrific what's happening right now. But but you know, it's it's what role does Hamas play going forward? And I mean, that's the question I have for for both of you. And how do we think about that? Help me think about it. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, Shadi, your piece in in the in the Washington Post was uh, was was absolutely right in the sense that there's no way around. Um, Hamas will continue to exist in one form or another. If the entire leadership is eliminated, all of their military hardware is uh, eliminated, as long as there's a single solitary member of Hamas somewhere with an email address, they will declare victory and, and they will continue to exist. And they will be more popular than they've ever been um, for having uh, uh, merely survived. And, and that is all they can do at this point. I mean, you look back at 1982, it was a very similar moment when Israel invaded Lebanon with the aim of destroying the PLO. Well, they didn't destroy the PLO, uh, but they did force them out of Lebanon and to permanently give up the, the armed struggle uh, in, you know, because they're now in Tunisia, there's nothing they could do uh, to, to directly challenge Israel militarily. Um, but on his way out, Yasser Arafat is doing kind of a victory lap, uh, even though he was defeated and expelled from, uh, from Lebanon. And, and, and so that's what's going to happen here. The, the notion that Hamas is going to be eradicated, the sooner American level-headed people can convince the Israeli side this is not going to happen, the sooner we can wrap this up. Because... To pretend that it's achievable is just an endless cycle of death and destruction. But but that's, you know, that, that I was actually talking to Shadi about this earlier today. That to me is a, a really interesting parallel. And I'm glad we can bring it up. I wasn't sure how we would. But the PLO is transformed after Lebanon, after actually yeah. suffering a, a massive military defeat. Let me ask you this question. Would this would it be fair to say that that up until now, Hamas has not actually been in a real war with Israel. That is to say, they were they had the comfort of being the opposition to the Quisling PA, which was collaborating so they could they could do a politics of terrorism, a politics of opposition within the Palestinian political idea. But uh, you know, they were they were sort of always call it in the opposition to the sort of uh, Western legitimated Palestinian political project. And so what we're seeing right now is, and you know, we've discussed this on the show before, whether whether uh, you know what what Hamas intended with October 7th, whether what they're experiencing right now and what what the Gazan uh, population, the, the horrors they're experiencing right now, 
this is the first time that Hamas has actually had to be at war with Israel, a war that they might lose and then maybe be transformed into actually the equivalent of a political party. Even as you said, if it's they're in exile and there's two guys with a Hamas email address and they can claim victory as it will. Yep. What I mean, it, what about that? It, it's entirely it's entirely possible. What what I'm saying is that we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that Hamas is going to be eradicated because the more anyone indulges that the more death and destruction we're going to see because it's not an achievable goal and and then the circle of death will just keep widening you know out forever that's it for part one dear listeners there's a lot more where that came from if you're not yet a paying subscriber please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one help support our work hope to see you in the bonus